Good morning, this is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Today we'll look at the way an artist and a blogger are bringing attention to the issue of gun violence in their very personal ways. We'll hear from Mexican artist Pedro Reyes about his performance and community engagement art project, Palas por Pistolas, Shovels for Guns. But first, we hear from Antonias Wiriajaira, the Jakarta-born, Boston-raised, NYU professor was walking to the subway last July when he became an innocent victim of a drive-by shooting in his own Brooklyn neighborhood. He'll be joining us by phone. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Can you start by describing what happened on that day? Well, it was July the 5th. I woke up really late, and when I checked my phone, one of my friends asked me to help her move. So I got up, went out the door, and just one block down from where I lived, I suddenly heard these fireworks, and I saw smoke trails fly past me, and I smelled gunpowder and something burning. And when I looked down, I realized I had just been shot, and I was in so much shock that I didn't feel anything. A moment later, I suddenly felt this incredible pain in my stomach, like somebody had kneed me, and then another pain on my shoulders, like someone had judo-chopped me on both sides. And that's because I was shot in the diaphragm on the chest, and that muscle connects all the way to the back. And the bullet traveled from my chest. It destroyed my spleen. It cut the top part of my pancreas and landed in my stomach. So that's why I felt the pain most in my stomach. Did anyone come to help you? or People did come to help me, but in the beginning, everybody was in so much shock and disarray and they were so fearful that the shooter was still shooting we all just got to recover i put pressure on my wound i looked for the nearest brick wall that i could find and i tried my best to stay elevated because i remember that the best thing to do with a wound is to stay elevated to keep the pressure uh, down and also to press down on the wound as much as you can and when i looked up i saw this figure and I remember looking up and thinking, oh, wow, it's the Prophet Muhammad, but it's actually just a barber and a do-rag because I was in so much pain that I was seeing visions. <laughs> right. I could, I could imagine you were sort of delirious there. I was very delirious, yes. So I definitely was not seeing reality at that point. So how did you end up in the hospital? First, the police came, and they made sure that the shooter was not there anymore. And they didn't want the Good Samaritans to be part of the crime. So they told them to get out of the way, but my Good Samaritans refused. There were three of them. One of them, he was heading to a job interview, and he started to fan me with his resume. And um, finally, when the EMTs did come, I felt like it was safe enough to uh, say something about uh, my identity. So I yelled out my home address, which was only one block away, and one of the Good Samaritans ran off and got my roommate. And... That roommate came with me on an ambulance to the hospital. I was still awake the entire time until the operating table, and I fell into a four-day coma. Can we back up a little bit? Why did you feel at first unsafe to say where you lived? I was worried that someone would get my information at the crime scene. Mm -hmm. But when the EMTs came, I decided that it was safe enough that I could say my information and that I wouldn't have to worry about my roommates or myself. So you're in the hospital in this four-day coma, uh, and I read on your blog that your mom came to help you. 
Yes, my immediate family came, and NYU was kind enough to host him in the dorm room while I was in the coma because I work for NYU. Excuse me, I'm just remembering. Is it still difficult for you when you think about it? You know, it's funny. It's more difficult now to think about it than a couple of months back. The longer the distance from the time, the more I digest what happened. (laughs) And you're still recovering, correct? Yes, I'm still recovering. And I mention that to a lot of people who are sometimes shocked because they would imagine getting a wound and then getting out of the hospital, you know, and then you get better. But no, it's, it's not that simple because the scars stay there and I have to wake up every day and I have to see them. And then there are the mental scars that nobody can see. And those are the hardest to deal with. So how are you dealing with them, Antonius? I try to stay creative. And the blog is one of those things. When I got out of the hospital, finally, I wasn't able to do anything by myself. You know, my family came to take care of me and I was given a health aid. I was supervised nonstop. So I had no control over my own life. But the one thing I did have a control for is to go on the internet and post a photo of myself every day. So I just kept doing that again and again and again. Can I back up a little bit? You had to have help at every step of the way. Did you find that comforting? Oh, no, it was it was not comforting. <laughs> it was comforting in the beginning, but I got to say, there were moments when I felt like I was being babysat. And as you know, somebody who was then 29, now I'm 30, that was not fun. Right. Um, at one point, I actually lied to my family and I told them, hey, I'm just going to go up to the hallway and actually got outside and then I grabbed a cup of coffee <laughs> and I came back in and it was just, you know, you just I needed just some peace to get away. And, and, I, exactly. Can you tell me what was one of the biggest challenges outside of your very loving family, you know, suffocating you with love? What was, <laughs> Mothering me? <laughs> what was uh, one of the biggest challenges afterward that you had to face? The hardest part was waking up in the morning and getting up. And I mean that in the literal sense of getting up because they had to cut me open from my chest down to my belly button and take out some of my organs and also check to make sure the other organs were working fine and then put it back in and sew me back up. The only thing I'm angry about is uh, they didn't sew me up with a six-pack now I'm stuck with just this one line from your chest down to my belly button. Oh, man. But because of that, my, my core muscles were destroyed, and getting up, sitting up was really, really hard. And it took you, you said you were in a coma. I would assume recovery is still going on? I just finished physical therapy a month ago with a very wonderful physical therapist who pushed me and at the same time nurtured me. And because of her, my recovery has been amazing. It's just much faster than I expected. They thought I would have been in the hospital for two months, but I ended up only staying two weeks. And everybody was telling me that it would probably take me about a year to get back to normal. But I've finally gotten back to a full-time schedule. And I'm sure your physical therapist had something to do with it. But in reading your blog, you seemed very determined. Was that always your type of personality? I guess I'm a little bit stubborn, if that's what you're saying. (laughs) I used determined. I said determined. Okay. (laughs) So you decided to start this blog. Yeah, and it was also a reason to get up. I I didn't have to get up. Actually, I was staying with my friends, and I had a television in front of me the entire time that I refused to turn on because I knew if I did, I'd just veg out the entire day. Yeah, I can understand that. It is 
Yeah, I mean, I would fantasize about that when I was healthy, but when I was unhealthy, I fantasized about other things. I fantasized about bicycling or swimming or little things like picking up my nephew because the bullets stole me from that. They, they stole those abilities from me. You're saying you thought about bicycling and things. Did you do that before you were shot? No, actually, I used to be a really, really unhealthy guy. I had a very high cholesterol when I was a teenager. And I guess what happened was I started to swim in college. And then in New York, it was such a pain in the butt whenever the subways didn't work out. So when Sandy hit, I started to bike everywhere. And I have been biking since then. Had that day been nicer, but it was 90 degrees. I would have biked to Manhattan, but it wasn't, so I decided to take the subway. Wow, do you think about that sometimes? Like, my whole I life do. can change depending on whether I go down one block or another or bicycle or ride the subway? I do. I, I, I think about that less now than before, but you can drive yourself crazy thinking about things like that. Why didn't I just keep playing video games that day? And why did I even pick up my phone? And I left my watch at home. Why didn't I go back to get my watch? Why did I choose that subway station versus another one? Because I was in between two of them. And I realized at some point, you can't ask those questions because there are never going to be answers. There are never going to be answers for what ifs. So what I could answer now is what am I going to do? I just got shot. I have to do something. And I answered that by blogging, by making sure I recovered, and making sure that my story gets told. And I want to hear your story from the beginning. Tell me about the first day that you blogged. You know, why did you go, okay, I'm going to sit here and do blank? Well, it started because I had a lot of people coming to visit me, and that was nice, but I needed time to sleep. So uh, I <laughs> wanted a way to tell people that I'm doing better. Without them knocking um, on your door. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Not that so you didn't appreciate it, but you're a little tired now. <laughs> right. So I just wanted a really easy way to tell everybody, hey, everybody, I'm doing better. And one of the things I learned when I was recovering was it's actually really comforting to ask people for favors because it means that they feel they, they've done something good for you. I asked one friend to bring a camera, another to bring some video recording stuff, something to record audio. And suddenly I had this photography studio right next to my bed that was all set up for me. And then a week and a half after I got out of the hospital, I took my first photo and what did you I write? It. I don't even remember anymore. It's been yeah. so long ago. But every day you would update your blog to say, hey, you know, I'm doing better. Yes. In the beginning, I guess I was more analytical. I was just saying, you know, oh, look, the scars are still red, they're concave, they feel like this, and I feel the most pain underneath my armpit because they had to put a tube in, a breathing tube, to make sure I was breathing correctly when I was in the hospital. So I started describing my pain, and I just was very matter-of-fact about it, but I was also very angry because I blamed it a lot on the fact that this guy had a gun. Had he had any other weapon, I would never have been involved in this. He was going after somebody else, and I was just walking down the street. And it's not just because I was shot. 
said, because I was shot in front of three little girls and their mother. I was shot in front of an elderly man. And I was shot in front of one of the Good Samaritans who could have been hurt herself. And that anger just got me so frustrated by the world because I just felt like this guy never should have had a gun. So I started talking about that as well. In your blog and in your performing, which you do now also, correct? Yes, I um, got to do a play at Dixon Place thanks to a theater company called Houses on the Moon. And they're really wonderful. All they asked for was for me to tell my story. So I did, and I showed all the photos from my blog, and people listened, and it was a really cathartic experience. And the audience received you well? Uh-huh, yeah. I had the right audience there to be supportive. Not all audiences are very happy with the things I'm saying. Why is that? A lot of people are very passionate about the right to bear arms, and I'm not against it. But... Sometimes they get defensive when that right gets questioned. And that's really unfortunate because that's part of the democratic system. That's part of why we have a government. That's why we have rights, because we can question things like these. So sometimes by questioning these things, people don't want to listen because they feel like they are being attacked. Do you think it's like a knee-jerk reaction where... There are certain hot-button issues that people don't necessarily want to deal with when it sounds like what you're trying to do is just start a conversation. Exactly. I feel that I don't agree with everybody who is on the anti-gun rights side, and I feel like I'm not going to agree with people who are pro-gun rights. But it's really unfortunate that because of the rhetoric, people stopped listening to each other and just started screaming and seeing out whatever facts they could find that would help out their side. And they forget about people like us, survivors, people who actually were affected by gun violence. And we all have this weird thing where we're one connected family now. And I can't describe it to you, but... You mean you and other, other people who have been shot? Uh-huh. And I've also been connected with other survivors of gun violence thanks to uh, Mayors Against Illegal Guns. Mm-hmm. And um, they were very kind. They didn't force me to uh, say anything like, I support mayors for, you know, anything. But they connected me with other victims of gun violence, and that was very empowering. Um, I got to meet with somebody who was shot in the Virginia Tech shooting in Aurora, and other small ones, too, like things you would never hear in the media. And it was very shocking that all of us had this very similar sense of humor and, as you would call it, determination. <laughs> yeah. Because we all were, you know, shot, and we all were deeply affected. Some of us became paraplegic, but we still have this love of life that I can't describe to you. <laughs> it's ineffable. Antonius, did you have that love of life beforehand? And have you found that more people than not tend to have a new appreciation for life? I can't speak for other people, but I can tell you about my own experience. You know, I I found my own happiness. I, I grew up poor. I grew up without a mattress, and I had to share with my brothers and sisters. And I ended up being the first in my family to go to college and the first to graduate from graduate school. And now I teach at NYU, which is such a crazy thing to think about. 
And I felt like I fought for all that. And I was just, in the beginning, so angry because this kid comes over and he's tried to take it away from me just by a simple pull of the trigger. But then I had to move away from that anger because that anger wasn't going to help. You know, it wasn't going to get me better. It wasn't going to get this guy. It wasn't going to do anything. And the only thing I knew how to do was, like before, figure out what to do next. That's what changed with me. I I found priorities. <laughs> Antonius, have you noticed any changes to either gun control policies or gun control awareness as a result of you sharing your experience? I guess people are more aware in my circles, that's for sure. But I have noticed, however, that this level of awareness uh, moves beyond just gun violence to violence in general. So because of what I'm talking about, people are also talking about domestic violence, which was the source of my shooting. It was somebody in a domestic dispute. And then people also talk about trauma because I've gone through a traumatic experience and I suddenly got all these friends who were sending other people my way who had gone through traumatic experiences because they needed to move on too. And it's actually very, very inspiring because we realized, man, humans can go through a lot and still be cool. <laughs> still survive and, and prosper. Well, I don't know about prospering, but yeah, I, I'll live. <laughs> have, how about have a spirit of prosperity? How about that? I feel very spiritually rich thanks to the support I got. So, Antonius, what's next for you? Yeah, all my life I've always wanted to go travel to Machu Picchu. And when I was in the hospital, my good friend Michaela and uh, my other friend Melissa they were talking with me and I said, you know what, let's just go and pick the date. And uh, it, it takes a very long time to book in advance. So I'm going this Friday. I'm so excited. How long are you going? Are you leaving for? Are you going to be gone for? I'm going for 10 days. And I got to say, it, it was also another goal, you know, with physical therapy. Because here I was about a couple months ago planning this trip, and I could barely make it up five flights of stairs, you know. And to think about hiking up Machu Picchu now um, is unbelievable. So I'll be doing that this Friday. So when you get back, I'll have to call and find out how your trip went. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or maybe you can come with me. I don't know. Oh, I would, room for one more. Don't tempt me. Do not tempt me. Will you be blogging about it, about yes, your trip? Yes. I don't know if I'll be blogging on time because I don't know how much uh, Wi-Fi access I'll have, but I'll definitely <laughs> blog. I'm still blogging. You can go on my blog at any time, gunsurvivor.antony.us. I want to thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for listening. For more information about Antonius Wiriagira, his photos, and his blog, visit Fordham Conversations' webpage. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Now my guest and I will be discussing an unusual project that aims to help us rethink the role of the artist and the function of art under the controversial theme of guns. Joining me by phone from Mexico City is artist Pedro Reyes, discussing his project, Palas por Pistolas, Shovels for Guns. And joining me in the studio are Joanna Isaac, chair of Fordham's Art History Department, and Father Gregory Waldrop. Each helped bring the project to our area. Now tell us how you're a part of 
Palas por Pistolas, Shovels for Guns. Hi, Shannon. Yes, I'm uh, the executive director of Fordham University Art Collections, and uh, I am supporting this exciting exhibition that Joanna and her students are organizing. And uh, it's part of my overall plan for University Art Collections to be involved not only in acquiring work for the permanent collection, but being involved in all areas of the visual arts here at Fordham. Now, I want to start with Pedro. Pedro, how would you describe Palas Por Pistolas, Shovels for Guns, and what really inspired you to create it? Well, this project started back in 2007, and it was possible to do in effectively in 2008 after an invitation by a botanical garden in a city in Culiacán. This is a garden that also has great pavilions and sculptures done by international artists that have been invited to do these uh, kind of outdoor large sculptures. And uh, when the philanthropist that runs this foundation told me, uh, I wanted to do something that was not only a kind of sculpture in this beautiful setting, but also something that could have a social impact in the community. And given the fact that this city had been affected by gun violence, I told them, why don't we organize a campaign for voluntary donation of weapons? So we collected 1,527 guns, and that became a 1,527 shovels to plant 1,527 trees. Now, where there was a gun, it's a tree. Who would like to explain a little bit more about how Fordham got shovels for guns? I came to know of Pedro's work through another artist, Terence Gower. Um, Terence Gower put me in touch with Pedro, and I thought this would be an excellent project to work with my students in an exhibition class that I'm doing. And so the students actually do all of the exhibition. They design the catalog. I'm looking at a photo of them with Pedro's shovels. We're, unfortunately in the snow with Pedro's shovels, but <laughs> at some time in the future, we will be planting the trees with Pedro's shovels. Um, so, Have you decided where the trees are going to be planted? That is actually one of the most difficult parts of this project, believe it or not, and we have a few sites. Uh, we're moving closer to determining specific sites, but Joanna's right. It's incredibly uh, bureaucratic to plant a tree oh, in New York City. Oh, is it really? But there are a lot of people who are excited about the project. In fact, I have never encountered a single person, and I've talked to many over the past year, who aren't excited about the project, really inspired by it. So, Can I uh, ask, what, Father Waldrop, what do they say inspires them so much about it? Can that's you what, share that? That's what's so great about this show and what really attracted me to it, because it's two things. One, it addresses really important issues, obviously. You know, in the aftermath of horrific events like Newtown, the issue of gun violence is enormous. And I think we're all frustrated you know, across the political spectrum with that problem and our seeming inability at the highest levels of government to do anything. So this show, you know, doesn't propose a, an actual solution to the problem, but it points in the direction of what we can do, uh, how we can be actively involved in approaching this and other kinds of social problems. Pedro, can I ask why shovels? I wanted something that could be used because when plantings happen, there's like almost a celebration, a kind of community gathering where people are making
making some physical effort with the shovel, you know, like uh, digging the hole and choosing which tree and which place will it be planted. It became a reason for people to get together and to express a voice against the overwhelming power of guns. We also see that every time we turn on the TV, guns are glorified as a sexy object, you know, like cool. Exciting. And the effect that they have in real life are totally devastating. So it's very important to involve a tool that is not only symbolical, but also fulfills a function. And it's turning an agent of death, and with that same metal, turn the agent of death into an agent of life. I think it's conceptually really wonderful, the idea that there is an exhibition, an exhibition space. The, the shovels are there as objects, and they are bright and shiny and beautiful. And, you know, there are trees uh, in the exhibition, and then... Uh, these videos sort of on a continuous loop showing these different aspects of the different phases of the project. But then the idea is uh, essentially once the show closes, it's not over. Volunteers essentially move out from the exhibition into the community. So the exhibition isn't just what you would normally expect to encounter at a gallery uh, where you go in and you there's a reception and, you know, people are sipping white wine and then they love it and they talk a little bit and they go away. No, we're going to have a reception and in uh, late March there might be some white wine sipped. <laughs> but ultimately, people are going to move out of the exhibition. The exhibition becomes a kind of hub for community action, for volunteerism and moving out into the city. And I I really love that. So, Pedro, can you go into a little bit more detail? Was there any kind of legal challenge with collecting all these guns? Well, these uh, campaigns are uh, organized with the help of the military. I've been continuing to work with the military and other efforts to try to solve the issue of gun violence because the problem is the hundreds of thousands of weapons that come from the United States into Mexico because it's very hard to buy guns in Mexico, but very easy to buy them in the United States. So I'm very happy that these plantings are happening in the United States as well, because in Mexico we realized that we cannot solve the problem of violence alone. We also need the help of the United States, because only if you curb gun availability, there's something that can be done. This is an issue almost of national security for Mexico. It's very problematic to be neighbors of the United States where guns are so easy to be acquired by anyone without background checks, etc. Would you call yourself an anti-gun advocate, Pedro? Yes, I, I think that uh, guns are an industry that thrives on conflict. I think that society needs to fight back because we're living in a very dangerous world. If you combine poverty with guns, you have a total disastrous situation. There's very interesting studies that show it's a combination of gun availability and poverty that makes the situation extremely explosive. So you have situations where you have ghettos or cities that have poverty. It's a humanitarian uh, disaster. And uh, this cannot be left without regulation. It's very important to take action in these issues. Where do you ultimately hope this project grows to? I, I would love to see more initiatives like this. 
where guns are transformed into other objects. But also, I believe that this is also a kind of cultural war, you know, uh, because... How so? Some of, many of the reasons why guns are so appealing is because they are portrayed, uh, how they're portrayed in pop culture. So I believe that also it's important to change your perceptions of guns. Joanna, I just wanted to add to that. It was funny, we were having a conversation with my students in the classroom. In a classroom where I was a student before, we would all been sitting around smoking cigarettes in that room. And so in the course of my lifetime, that conversation has so radically changed that now we understand this as a huge health hazard, and no one would be smoking cigarettes in a classroom any longer. And that's exactly what this is about. It's simply starting to change the conversational drift so that if it changes it like this, fairly soon the way in which cigarettes look so sexy in movies. Now if somebody smokes in a movie, you're kind of appalled. And the same thing will be true, I think, with guns in movies. They won't be sexy. You'll be appalled, right? So, change the conversation, yes, exactly. change the culture. Yeah. And if someone wanted to find out more about this art installation at Fordham? They can visit our webpage at www.fordham.edu slash university art. Thank you guys so yeah. much. Thank you, Pedro. Thank, Thank you, you so Robin. much. I'd like to thank all my guests today and my producer, Alan Kanlick. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. on 90.7 WFUV. Stay with us, George Bodarki and Cityscaper next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.